0: On the Sabbath Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her he called her forward and said to her, "Woman, you are set free from your infirmity." Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, "There are 6 days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox and donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with the wonderful things he was doing. Brothers and sisters, we pray here God's blessing on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. May it delight us and may it free us from those chains that would bind us, those burdens that would, would weigh us down, that we would find freedom and hope and power in the name of Christ. Speak to us in these moments. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I came across a list recently uh, that was a, was a ranking of the scariest television episodes um, of all time. It was actually 1 through 13, I guess 13 being an unlucky number. And they ranked the scariest television episodes. One of them, which is uh, not I'm getting into, was actually an episode of "Little House on the Prairie," if you can believe that. Um, I don't remember which one, that wasn't the one that caught my attention. What caught my attention was the very first episode, the number one episode. And it was an episode from the 80s television show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Some of you may remember. And there was a 60s version of that. I think it was called The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. But it was an episode that actually aired on both, both in the 60s and then was redone in the 80s, with a few of the, the details changed, but the heart of the story remained the same. And it was called, the episode was labeled Final Escape. And so I watched it. On, on the computer. And the story is of, of a woman, a very um, unrepentant woman, a, a very um, unlikable woman, I guess is the modest way to say it, who's convicted of murdering her husband. And she is sent to prison. And she is convinced that she is going to get out. She's, that is her one objective, is to break free, to try to do a prison break, to get out of this this situation that is beneath her. And and so the, the over arc of the story is that she manipulates, becomes friends with, but manipulates an older gentleman in the prison who is named Doc, who is the only prisoner that is allowed outside the walls of the prison because he was the one that would go and bury the caskets when somebody died in the prison if they didn't have family. His job was then to go out with the casket and to bury the casket. So in the course of manipulating him and and earning his trust, she hatches an escape plan that he finally agrees to participate in. And that is that the next time somebody dies, the the bells would ring in the prison, that she was going to sneak down and sneaks down into the, the morgue, if you will, and she crawls into the casket. And from there, she would be carried out with the body, would be buried, and then Doc would come back out an hour or so later and would dig up the casket and release her. And so that's her plan. So that's what happens. The, the belt holes. She goes down. She crawls into the casket. It's dark, so she can't see anything. So she gets into the casket. The casket's carried out. It's buried, and you have this scene of her in the casket, gloating in her, her wisdom, gloating in the fact that she's going to get out, and she's going to show everybody, and some of you know exactly where this is going, and waiting to be dug up, and waiting and waiting, and finally becoming more and more panicked when she's not hearing Doc digging her out. And she strikes a match to look around, and who does she see in the casket? Doc. The body that had died, the one who had died, was Doc. And, and she called in, and, and so you have this final scene of her, you know, however they filmed it in this casket. And I'm telling you what, it is terrifying. It really is. And it's terrifying in a wonderfully Hitchcockian way, which is, you know, Hitchcock made his, his, his name on this. It's not graphic, it's not violent, it's just, it's psychologically terrori- terrifying because as you watch it, you can't help but imagine what it would be like to be in that situation. I mean, can you imagine? There's, there's actually, don't imagine, because it's very unpleasant. But there's few ways that would be more horrible than, than that to be trapped in there. And, and I started to, to think about, what is so terrifying about that? I mean, there's obvious things. But, but the heart of it is this. In that moment as you're watching this episode, and, and again, you have no sympathy for this woman. But you realize she is in a place in that moment when that match strikes and she realizes that the one person who knew she was there and was going to save her is the person that is in the casket with her, that she is completely hopeless. She is completely hopeless. There is no hope for her deliverance, for her uh, escape. There's, there's no hope. And that, I think, is at least if we really dig down deep into the things that scare us, is at the heart of it, to be in a situation in life when we find ourselves completely without hope. In the Gospel reading this morning, here in Luke chapter 13, Jesus encounters a woman who we can speculate was, was losing hope. Most people don't have a moment, most, in which, like, like the story in which from a, you just go to a stark moment where all hope is gone, very often life begins to just drain us of that. Our circumstances begin to drain us of that. The burdens that we carry begin to drain us of that. And we have a wonderful word and experience and an image of what Jesus does and how Jesus meets us in those kind of places so that we don't become hopeless, that we are not a people, as Paul would say, who grieve or face life without hope. And so let's look at this story and let's pay attention To the details. The first detail I want to point out is the the obvious one. Verse 11. It's about a woman who had been, in the language of the text, crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Let's think about that wordage. Crippled by a spirit. Now, there's an obvious context there. There's an obviously obvious application, and that is that this woman is physically suffering. She is physically suffering, and that was the way, it was kind of a, a common term to often describe physical ailment and illness and, and struggles, um, crippled by a spirit, because they didn't have that kind of medical knowledge to, to explain the details of what she was suffering from, but she is suffering physically. Biblical scholars say it's probably, and, and, and I, I read some medical explanations of, of the name of what they speculate she had, but basically it was a spinal disability that hunched her over very much so, very probable that she couldn't even make eye contact with people that she was encountering because she was so hunched over and 18 years of this. And so she is clearly burdened by physical affliction, crippled by spirit. There's some of us in here today that presently know or have known what it feels like to be crippled by. A spirit, by a physical affliction that burdens us, that, that um, weighs against us, that, that, that physically impacts our, our mobility or our interactions or our, or our comings and goings, whatever it is, we can immediately identify with that. We know to a point, maybe not exactly what she felt like, but we know what it's like to feel crippled by a spirit. But what I love so much about that phrase is that I think it has a far larger implication, because the reality is a lot of us don't have that kind of identity. We don't identify with this woman's physical affliction. But when we begin to understand the ways that we can become crippled by a spirit, we begin to hear ourselves and find ourselves in the story, because we can certainly face that physically. But many of us also know what it's like to be crippled by spirit spiritually. To be crippled by a spirit emotionally. To be crippled by a spirit relationally. In other words, to have life beat us down in such a way, weigh on us so deeply that we find ourselves, if not physically hunched over, emotionally, spiritually, and physically hunched over. The burdens that just pile on our shoulders, the weights that we carry, the uncertainties we face, the fears that are before us, the insecurities that that we wake up with. I mean... there's no end to the application. I would be willing to bet that if we really dig deep into our experiences, if we really dig deep into into some emotional reflection, we at least can identify times in our lives when we felt ourselves crippled by the Spirit, hunched over, burdened. Many of us were here, I shouldn't say many, a few of us were here uh, Friday night for the dinner and movie night, and And the movie that we'd advertise you remember um, was Miracles from Heaven. Some of you may have seen this on your own. It's a powerful movie. I highly recommend it to you. But if you watch it, please have tissues because you're going to need them. But as I watched it, the story of of this mother and her daughter and the family as as this young girl who's fighting this life-threatening illness, and you see it in one way through the lens of her mother, who you can watch through the movie as it progresses, her become more and more crippled by the Spirit. As she watches her daughter deteriorate, and and, and few of us can think of, some, of anything worse than, than that would be for a parent, you can see her relationally, emotionally, spiritually, in her faith, become crippled by a Spirit. You can almost see a hunching over, if you will. And so that is the situation that Jesus steps into. That's the situation this woman is facing physically, but we're all facing that. In one way or another, we face those moments, and maybe you're facing those moments today. There's another interesting detail about this woman that jumped out at me as I reread the story. And it is actually right before it tells us that she'd been crippled in the spirit. Let me go back to the first verse and a half. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there i want you to hear that because it's really really easy to miss and a woman was there the woman afflicted for 18 years physically difficult to move hunched over maybe can't even make eye contact but on the sabbath day where is she she's in the house of god worshiping a woman was there if anybody would have an excuse to be mad at God, If anybody would have a reason to feel, this is not the place for me to be, it's got to be painful for her to get there. but she's there. And I want to be careful because the, the scriptures don't give us insight to her thinking, and I want to be careful about just projecting and assuming what she's thinking. I don't know, but, but what I do know is this. I don't, may not know the exact reasons, exact motivation, or mo- motivations, the exact impulses she felt. But what I do know is this she, believed it was important to be in the house of God on the day of worship because she believed God would meet her there. She had an expectation that something significant happened there. And I don't mean that she believed she was going to show up that day and be healed. She'd been afflicted for 18 years. I would find it very reasonable to believe this was the illness she was going to die with. I don't believe that she showed up because she necessarily knew Jesus was going to be there or she knew what Jesus would do. She showed up because she knew God was there. The reality is I don't know what drives any of you in the morning to get out of bed and come here, specifically. I don't know whether it's the the fellowship you feel with with friends, whether it's you come because you love the music, whether you come because you hope that the preacher says something worth hearing on that day, knock on wood, Um, what it is that, that draws you to come. But what I hope is at the heart of it is that you believe that in this place, in this hour, in these moments, you'll meet God. That in these moments that God's going to be present and real to you, that you come with an expectation. All those other things are the way God does it. So they're all valid reasons to be here. But to be there because it's a unique place where God shows up in our lives every week. Not the only place, but it is a very unique place that God has called us in the community of faith to be there because Jesus meets us here. And that's exactly what he does here. And, and we come of free will. What I find so powerful about the story is she comes of her own free will. She's driven and motivated by her desire to be there, not by a, a, an obligation. There's times in, in, in cultural history, in world history, in American history, when, when going to church was required, you didn't have a choice. If you lived in certain communities at certain times, if you lived in the Jamestown Colony, In the early 17th century, remember Jamestown, Virginia, one of those early colonies, you had to go to church. You didn't have a choice. And I want you to know that that meant 14 times a week, 14 times a week you were at church. Sunday morning church in Jamestown Colony, which was legally binding, you had to go five hours, was how long worship was, two sermons on a Sunday morning. You think you complain about 20 minutes here. Two sermons on a Sunday. And then you came back that night for prayer service with another sermon. The preacher had to preach Tuesday or Wednesday with a sermon. And the, it was against the law for the preacher not to have a sermon ready. He couldn't beg off because he could be uh, in trouble. You had to go 14, services morning and night 14 times a week. If you didn't show up, the first day you didn't show up, you lost your food rations for the day. The second time you didn't show up, you could actually be whipped. And if you, if you missed the third time, for six months, every day, you'd be placed in the stocks. Six months. Nobody recorded history ever missed more than two services. Go figure. Um, now, now that's, it's interesting. I'm glad we don't have that kind of a world. I'm glad we don't live in that kind of a society. Because worship, what drives us, what drove her from the best we can tell, wasn't that she had to be there. wasn't legally binding. wasn't forced upon her. But she wanted to be there because she... Believed something powerful happened in worship. We come together because we believe that in our worship God meets us here and God testifies to the world about who we are and whose we are. Every time somebody drives by this church on a Sunday morning, or any of our brothers and sisters worshiping, it's testimony that there's something happening there that it's important enough for people to go. I'm not saying that everybody wants to be here, I wish, but it's still a testimony that this matters to us, something significant. Happens here. And I have to believe that even those who have no faith wonder what it is that is so important to us that we'd give up a Sunday morning to sleep in, to show up, to be here. Because God's here. Because God's here. And so she shows up. Now let's hear the next interesting detail. In verse 12 says after, it goes right before that, says she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her. Now, isn't that easy to miss? When Jesus saw her? Because our instincts, of course Jesus saw her. She was there. Wouldn't wouldn't any of us have seen her? But I don't think we would have. Because I think we become very good sometimes at not seeing. I don't mean this maliciously. But I mean, how many times are you in a food establishment and there's maybe somebody who's homeless sitting in the corner, and you don't see them. Oh, you may notice them, but you don't see them. I don't see them. You know, we're taught not to stare, not to make people uncomfortable. We're taught sometimes not to see. It says that Jesus saw her, but he saw her differently. He, it's not just that he took notice of her. We would have all taken notice of her. Jesus saw her so often in the way that he Sees people. Let me remember a few years ago, a number of you ago, uh, the movie Avatar, remember that? Big James Cameron blockbuster, big blue people, foreign, foreign, or um, alien land. In the movie, one of the threads throughout that, one of the phrases throughout that is this attempt for the main character to learn how to see. In fact, there's a phrase over and over that says, I see you. And that's what he finally, at the very end, he looks at the, uh, at, at, and I don't remember the names of the characters, but he looks at the, the woman he says, I see you. And the implication there is not what's obvious, not the physical appearance, not what's on the outside, but he's finally learned how to see deeper. He's learned how to see somebody's heart, somebody's spirit, somebody's soul. He's learned to see beyond what is on the obvious exterior of a situation. Well, that's what Jesus does. He sees her. He sees her. And, and here's what I want you to hear, friends. Whatever it is that you've brought in today, whatever the burdens it, whatever it is that may have you feeling a little hunched over, Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. We may not. You may be really good at, at, at the false front that we all do, and me included. Smiles and handshakes and how's life? Yeah, it's good. Everything's great. We may not see it. But Jesus sees Jesus sees you and when he looks at her, he sees her and he sees her for who she is, not what she's afflicted by. And how do I know that? Because at the end of the verses when the, the religious leaders called out Jesus and we'll get to that in a moment, He says, should not this woman, this daughter of Abraham, I want you to pay attention to how He names her, this daughter of Abraham. you know what he's saying? She is a daughter of promise. The sons and daughters of Abraham are the sons and daughters of the promise and the covenant that God makes. He doesn't say this woman afflicted by an illness, this woman who is hunched over, this woman who is struggling physically. He says this woman, this daughter of Abraham, he saw her value and her worth and his heart's desire in that moment of seeing her was to make her well, to lift her burden. And that's what he does. He lifts her burden. Daughter, you are healed from your infirmity. Jesus sees us as we come into this place, and he longs to carry and to remove from us the burdens. John talked about the text, the words of Jesus, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest hungers to give us rest. He longs to remove from us the weight that hunches us over, the fears that we carry, the insecurities that burden us, the the afflictions that weigh us down, if we will come to Him. If we will come to Him and let Him speak His truth into our lives. And then our challenge is to do that for each other. Our challenge is to be burden lifters and to carry that. But Jesus sees us Jesus sees us. But there's someone else that Jesus sees. Because there's two encounters in this story. The obvious is the woman who's healed, but he sees someone else. Actually, someone else makes himself painfully known. And it's the leader of the synagogue. And in seeing Jesus heal this woman, it says he becomes indignant. And he says to Jesus... There are 6 days to heal. Today's not one of them. This is the Sabbath. This is the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to do that now. Don't you know? No matter how good life is, no matter how good the circumstances of your life is, no matter how good the things you're encountering going through may be, there's always somebody you can find that would love to pour cold water on your parade. Don't you know? Yeah, you're all thinking of somebody right now. Don't name them, just leave them. There's somebody. That is this religious leader. The one person who ought to be celebrating the miracle of God, who's probably seen this woman week in and week out in her infirmity come into the house of the Lord, who ought to be leading the parade for her healing, is the one who is most angry about it, because he's got a burden. You know what his burden is? Self-righteousness. You know what his burden is? Being judgmental. You know what his burden is? Criticism. Let me tell you what. We all can find ourselves once in a while carrying this burden. Carrying this burden in which we find ourselves in a moment of somebody's joy thinking they didn't quite do it right. In a moment of somebody's celebration thinking they're not playing by the rules, he becomes the stone thrower, and he falls into this trap that Jesus warns over and over again with the Pharisees, that they're so enamored by following the rules that they've lost the heart. They've lost the heart, and their spirit and their burden is that they're just critical and judgmental and angry. And the problem is, with their burden, is their burden becomes everybody else's burden. See, there are times that we need to to have a spirit of of critical thought, that we need to, to hold each other accountable. But when we do that, when we hold each other accountable, our intention is to lift each other up. If you're living in a way that is destructive in your life, or I'm living in a way that's destructive in my life, and you call me to accountability, the heart of that should be because you love me or because I love you, and I want to see you freed from the burden. I want God to work in your life to lift you up and remove that from you. But here's the problem with the Pharisees. They threw burdens on people. They weren't seeking to lift him up, they were seeking to weigh him down. And Jesus had no patience for that. In fact, he gets not only no patience, he gets angry over it. Over and over, stop dumping the burdens on others. Stop making enemies of God. Not because God wants the enemies, but because in doing this, in this kind of self-righteousness, we, we push people further away from God. And We have to be aware of that. We have to be sensitive to that. There's, a, there's an old story of a of a nobleman who had many knights. And uh, he had lived in a castle, and his knights would go out and do his bidding. One day he looks out and he sees the knight, uh, one of his knights coming back from the field, and he's, I mean, he looks awful. His helmet's dented up, his face is dirty, his shirt's got blood on it, his horse is limping, he's riding sideways on the saddle. I mean, he just looks like he's been through a war. And so he runs out and he says, what have you been doing? He says, I've been out on your behalf. I've been confronting your enemies in the West. I've been um, pillaging and punishing and, and robbing all your enemies in the West. And the nobleman looks at him and says, There's a problem. I don't have any enemies in the West. And the knight looks at him and says, Well, you do now. That, that's, that's what happens. You know, we create those who get pushed further from God when our burdens become their burdens. And we live in a, in a self-righteous or a critical way. We have to be careful. I read a, a number of blogs and, and websites throughout the course of the week. I think I've mentioned one before that I read that I don't know why I go to it. It's kind of like um, rubbernecking. You know, I, I go because all it does is it targets churches and it's, it's written from by somebody who, uh, who is a Christian, but, but the whole purpose of it is to go find what other churches are doing wrong and highlight it. You know, the things that they're doing that, that this writer thinks are unfaithful or, or unbiblical or heretical or whatever it is. And there's sometimes I, I kind of agree. But the thing is, that's all this is about. That's all it's about. There's no celebration of story. There's no celebration of life change. There's no talking about those who are involved in those ministries and seeing things from a, another perspective. It's just throwing stones. That's the whole point. And I thought, wow, woe to us when we become like that because we become burdened and then we dump our burdens on everybody else. That's what Jesus was so angry about. And so he sees two people who are burdened. One that he is able to heal, and one I believe that he couldn't help. Not because he didn't want to, but because the heart had been so hardened to his message and his word. Sometimes we can find ourselves in either place. Sometimes we might find ourselves in both. I want you to know that Jesus is a liberator. There's a a wonderful... Um, inscription on a baptismal font in um, Belmont Abbey Church in North Carolina. It's outside Charlotte. And this, this big rock has been chiseled out to, to hold water for baptism. But the story is that this big rock used to be used um, as an auction block for slaves. Slaves would stand on it when they were sold. And on this baptismal font, um, says this, on this rock, men were once sold into slavery. Now they are baptized into freedom. How's that? How's that for power? That's what Jesus does. Baptizes us into freedom. Lifts those burdens. Bring them to him. Bring them to him. He sees you. He sees you. Son and daughter of Abraham. Son and daughter of promise. Let Jesus lift those burdens. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, it is humbling to come before you knowing that you do see us. But it is liberating to know that whatever you see, first and foremost, you see your love and your compassion. Lord, free us from the things that would hunch us over, from the burdens that we carry. Free us from the self-righteousness that can penetrate and use us to your glory. Use us to, to be the sons and daughters of Abraham you've called us to be. The sons and daughters of promise. We pray it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.